Must mean it's time for another Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, a great naval aviator met an untimely end earlier this week. We'll be talking with a special guest who knew and flew with Captain Dale Snort Snodgrass. And we'll take a look at what we might expect when the biggest naval trade show in the United States reopens this coming week the first major American live naval event since the pandemic shut down of early March, 2020. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The U.S. Navy said July 29th that a crew member of the amphibious assault ship Bonham Richard has been accused of starting the fire that eventually consumed much of the ship in July, 2020. San Diego-based U.S. Third Fleet did not name the sailor but media reports said he was the same crew member questioned last August about his actions on the morning of the fire. A third fleet spokesman said in a statement that court-martial charges against the sailor are being considered and that an impartial hearing officer will determine further trial proceedings. Separate from the sailor's accused arson, the Navy has not said how the fire started, nor released its report on the mistakes that led to the ship burning for four and a half days on the waterfront of the San Diego Naval Base. The crews of the HMS Queen Elizabeth, Carrier Strike Group 21, rounded past Singapore and entered the South China Sea on July 25th. Queen Liz is expected to operate about two months in the Western Pacific and conduct exercises with a number of friendly nations, even as the presence of the task force is being closely covered by Chinese media. One Chinese editorial under the headline, UK shouldn't tempt own fate in South China Sea, warned the British not to sail too closely to what it called China's red lines, saying if they did so, they would become an example where China would execute one as a warning to 100. Meanwhile, COVID continues to affect the crews and a major defense conference scheduled to be held aboard the Queen Elizabeth while in Korean waters has been rescheduled for October in the United Kingdom aboard sister ship Prince of Wales. Additionally, the Chinese government also reacted strongly to the passage on July 28th of the U.S. destroyer Benfold through the Taiwan Strait, a move the U.S. Navy has been making roughly once a month for the past two years. China notes its naval and air forces tracked the Benfold through its entire transit of the waterway between Taiwan and mainland China, also a regular occurrence. On July 24th, the U.S. Navy and the Missile Defense Agency carried out a complex exercise near Hawaii using the Aegis weapon system and four standard SM-6 Dual-2 missiles aboard the destroyer Ralph Johnson to attempt to intercept two short-range ballistic missile targets. One of the targets was destroyed, while the other interception failed. It was the most complex test yet executed by the Missile Defense Agency. The SM-6 is used by service ships against air targets, including aircraft and missiles, and it can attack surface targets, including ships. This most recent exercise was the third test of the SM-6 in the ballistic missile defense role, where it can attack short to medium-range ballistic missiles in the terminal phase. On July 28th, U.S. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Carl Schultz presided over a rare triple ship commissioning ceremony. The fast response cutters Myrtle Hazard, Oliver Henry, and Frederick Hatch were simultaneously commissioned at Santa Rita, Guam, where they will be permanently based in the Western Pacific. In San Diego, USS Independence, the first of the LCS-2 Independence-class frigates, was decommissioned on July 29th. 
In service for about 11 and a half years, the ship spent most of her time performing developmental testing. She becomes the first littoral combat ship to leave service, even though they were projected to last at least two decades. The Independence now will enter the reserve fleet in Bremerton, Washington. Exercise Talisman Sabre 2021 continued off the coast of Australia. More than 17,000 military personnel from seven different nations are taking part, including warships from Australia, the United States, Canada, Japan, and South Korea. The exercises continue into mid-August. And that's a quick look at naval events around the world. On July 25th, the aviation world, and naval aviation in particular, was shocked to learn of the death of veteran pilot Dale Snort Snodgrass. The famed aviator whose most publicized exploit came in 1988 when he zoomed his F-14 Tomcat, banking at 85 degrees close by the aircraft carrier America, was closely associated with the Tomcat throughout his career. He was killed in the crash of a small Marchetti SM-1019 turboprop aircraft that crashed shortly after takeoff from an airport in Lewiston, Idaho. Snodgrass was the only person aboard the plane. Snodgrass had more than 4,800 flying hours in the F-14, tops in Tomcat history. He also flew dozens of other types of aircraft and pretty much created the idea of legacy or heritage flights, where modern aircraft fly in formation with classic aircraft like the Grumman F-7 Tiger Cat. Such flights have become staples of, staples of many air shows. We're lucky to have with us today someone who knew Snort and flew with him many times, usually in the backseat of high-performance two-seat aircraft. Jose Fuji Ramos is one of the world's foremost naval aviation photographers specializing in air-to-air -air photography. Fuji, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. So uh, can, you, can you give us a sense of where Snort stood in, in, the, in the world of naval aviation? Well, I mean, he's definitely the top of the pyramid. In the last 50, 60 years, there's probably no more famous naval aviator around the world uh, than Snort Snodgrass, um, not just because of his exploits with the, uh, the F-14, but as you said, you know, he basically originated uh, the Heritage Legacy Flight uh, program, even though you know, the Air Force at the time didn't kind of realize what was going to happen um, when he started working with uh, the Kalamazoo organization over there bringing in uh, the, the Navy heritage aircraft, you know, the Tiger Cat, as you said, and they, flying they flew all Grumman's. This, this is a group. Yep. It was a, it was a definitely a Grumman show, you know, and, uh, and Snort had a history with Grumman. His father worked at Grumman and uh, he was, his father was also a Marine Corps aviator from World War II. So you might say that aviation was definitely in his, uh, his blood. And while everybody sits there and tends to kind of focus on that one shot of uh, the, the knife edge pass uh, by the, uh, the LSO platform uh, on the America. I mean, there was so much more to snort. I mean, he was known as, you know, the man that was pretty much almost unbeatable in a dogfight, whether he was flying an F-14 Tomcat, whether he was flying an A-4 Skyhawk, or whether he was flying an F-5 Tiger, because uh, he did serve as, a, as an adversary pilot uh, with VF-43 as well at Naval Air Station Oceana. Um, and he went to Top Gun in 1977 when he was a J.O. Uh, junior officer at uh, 142, the Ghost Riders. So then he was also one of the first two Nugget pilots coming in straight from the training pipeline to be selected for the F-14. You know, everybody else up to that point had been conversion training. You know, they'd, they'd all kind of uh, come over from the F-4 Phantom 
uh, maybe FA Crusaders, but more likely it was the F4 Phantom community that was transitioning to the Tomcats. And he, like I said, he and another person was one of the first two that was selected for that kind of training. And so he was from the start, you know, a Tomcat guy. And he was Mr. Tomcat. Um, you know, he flew that airplane to the absolute edge. Uh, but like I said, he had this, um, this reputation as a extremely proficient tactical aviator. And a lot of, not a lot of people know is when he went from being in the training command and got his wings before going to the F-14 pipeline, he went to VF-126 in Miramar. Uh, I think at that time it was VA-126. And what that was, it was an instrument training uh, squadron. And they basically trained able aviators in instrument flying. They you were in the backseat of a a4 Skyhawk and you had a pilot in the front and bad guy in the back had to put on the hood and had to fly the airplane via instrument. He became an, inst uh, an instructor for that. Of course, those of the people that know the history of Top Gun know that 126 was right next door and Top Gun routinely used assets from 126 for their training missions. So they, they would occasionally be borrowing A4 Skyhawks. So this was really kind of where Snort was more than likely started fostering that, that, that drive for greatness as a tactical aviator, as a, as a fighter pilot. So you've, you've flown with, 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 with tons of guys. Mm -hmm. This is this sort of what you do. Um, was there anything particularly special flying with Snort? Was he, was he, did, did he have a good sense of, of what, you would, what would make a good shot, what you <laughs> needed, this sort of thing? Snort was natural. Snort first and foremost knew the value of a good image. He, uh, he definitely got the whole thing of that when you take a good picture of naval aviation, that's used to promote naval aviation. So he got it and he was the veteran of many, many a photo uh, missions from the, uh, the role of the subject and also from the role of being the photo ship pilot. Um, at one point we were flying in the T-33 and we were on uh, a test flight uh, to document uh, the A4 Skyhawk return to flight that we had there at Draken. And we checked everything on the ground and everything was good. Uh, obviously we briefed the heck out of these images. We don't do a photo mission without briefing the living daylights out of, a, out of what we want out of these things. You don't just go up there and just say, hey, let's go take some happy snaps. Um, shortly after takeoff, my ICS went out. My, inter my intercom system went out. Um, I could hear him intermittently, but he couldn't hear me at all. And we could not sit there and, and, and figure out what's going on. And, um, but it was a critical flight. And he sat there and he goes, hey, Fuge, um, we're gonna press if you're comfortable with that. And I was like nodding enthusiastically in the back going, press. And he goes, all right, you know, it's kind of scratches. And sometimes when he, I couldn't hear him, he's literally yelling at me, you know, taking off the mask and sitting here just yelling at me. And I can hear him kind of, you know, because he's in the front seat and we don't have a, a partition between us. And we joined up with the A4 and we started to sit here taking the pictures. And this is a guy who, even though he's a tactical aviator, he knew what a photographer needed. And he put me in perfect position. He remembers, you know, because we take our knee boards with us, our kneeboard card, so we have the brief. And we have the, uh, 
the whole thing kind of written out, sun angles and everything. And, and he follows it to the, to the, to the max. He sits there and shouted at me a couple of times. He goes, are you getting what you needed? And I'm giving an uh, enthusiastic thumbs up from the back seat, and we got it done. And, you know, it's so, it's so flying with him was, was always an awesome adventure. And, and you just knew you were going to get what you needed to. First of all, thank you very much for, uh, for, for joining us um, and for sharing uh, those stories. Um, Chris and I have talked about on the podcast and over the years, the importance um, probably more than any other service of the Navy being able to tell its story because the platforms are so expensive. I remember as a young kid, it, it's funny, I, I know Snort Snodgrass as a eight or nine year old uh, when he flew at Pax River. I born and raised in Southern Maryland, would never miss an air show. And it, it was like, uh, you know, Cal Ripken was coming to uh, Southern Maryland. I mean, he was the exactly. he was the star. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, you know, and he flew the, the F-14 and he would then stand by the F-14, um, you know, either before or after, uh, his flight and would engage, uh, you know, either friends from the fleet or, um, many a time talk to, to young folks like myself. Can you talk a little bit about how critical, especially at that time for Naval Aviation, these types of flights and then later with the, um, you, you know, with the legacy aircraft that he flew, how important it is to, to do this type of uh, um, these types of engagements and, and what a personality he was and how seriously he took that, that mission. Well, to me, it's, it's, I grew up kind of in the same way. Uh, I didn't go actually to the first air, my first air show until I was 18 years old. Uh, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, we didn't get too much over at McGee Tyson from time to time, every now and again, you know, every few years. But I never went to my first air show until I actually went to Naval Air Station in Memphis. Um, uh, my buddy and I, after graduating high school, took a cross-country trip to, to go do that. So, and I, I definitely, you know, in the, in the year since then, it's, it's something that's definitely kind of hit me just how important it is because not everybody gets a chance to sit there and meet a Naval aviator. And you sit there and you and you wind up having a very um, skewed um, perspective because most people's you know view of naval aviation is Top Gun, Final Countdown, World War II movies, you know, Baba Black Sheep, Flying Leathernecks, stuff like that. And and that's I'm not going to call it parody, although sometimes it is. Um, but it it's not. A, a real representation and when you and when you got a chance if you ever got a chance to go to an air show and meet snort and uh that's him and i actually you know he actually proved my first major feature for world air power journal um and, and so i i kind of met him when he was commodore and then i kind of reconnected with him on the air show circuit and you know he on the air show circuit was king he didn't care who you were he greeted old friends and new friends exactly the same way. I mean, he, he could have been the poster child for PR, uh, naval aviation PR, and he basically was. Because like I said, he didn't you know, treat anybody differently. Um, there's, there's too many times again, you know, where you have some people who kind of believe their own legend or you know, they basically, they go to an air show because they just want to get out of town, this, that, and the other. Snort stayed by his airplane and he answered questions. He sat there and he, he wanted to educate people. He wanted to sit there and he, he wanted to get them passionate about naval aviation. Um, and then in the air show circuit afterward, he wanted to get people in, uh, excited about aviation in general. So he was also a great ambassador for aviation 
period. When you sit there and you see him flying out there, you know, he was always a champion for people to learn about flying. And, you know, he knew that um, to get the public on the side of aviation helps aviation and not just naval aviation, but aviation in general. And that was always the great thing. So he always treated everybody with this great respect. And I was very lucky. I mean, it's like last, I still remember the last time I saw him. Uh, he was over here at Lakeland and I was taking some shots, some over there at uh, Draken. They had kind of wheeled out one of the mirages. And I was like, oh, it's like, hey, snort. And he sat there and he looked over at me, just kind of walks over to me. It's like, Fuji. And he gives me this great big bear hug. And I'm like, oh, it's like, oh, God, man, I love this man. And, and he treated people like that day in, day out. He, he made you feel like you were the center of the world at that time when he was talking to you. It was never about him. It was, he was a great guy. And like I said, he was just, uh, he was the consummate fighter pilot too. Um, you know, one of his mentors was uh, Hoser Satrapa, who was, uh, an F4, was an F-8 uh, crusader pilot during the Vietnam War. He served with uh, VF-111 Sundowners. You know, you had this kindred spirit when those two, we all sat there and were very shocked by the events, you know, of last Saturday. And, but, you know, we all sat there and kind of agreed that it's like, you know, this is the way Snork was going to go out. Right, we, we, right. we knew that the probability of him um, dying quietly in bed was probably slim to none. Well, again, going back to Hoser, who was, you know, such a, a big influence on, uh, on Snork's life and, and a good friend and mentor and stuff, um, Hoser languished uh, in, his, in his final days uh, to the point where he couldn't even speak and, and Snork was there by his side. Um, when Hoser died, they actually had him cremated and Snort had his ashes loaded it in the, uh, uh, the air brake of a, one of the A4 Skyhawks from Draken. And they basically dispersed his ashes over the Nellis range uh, where Hoser sat there and did that famous picture of the F-14, you know, uh, gun sight over the F-15 Eagle on the Nellis range during uh, aim valve, ace valve. And, and one of the things is, like I said, we, we all sat there and said, it's like, man, you know, it was such a shame that that hoser, you know, kind of went out that way because, you know, the, the body fails us. Right. And um, for Snort, he went out, even though he was 72 years old, you know, he, he was still in his prime. He, he still flew like, you know, he was born to it because he was. And, um, and like I said, you know, we're all, you know, we're all hurting, but we're all, you know, glad that we're, that our last memories of Snort are not somebody, you know, that had to, kind of go out in a state that was not fitting of right. their legacy and, and their spirit. Our, our guest today has been uh, Fuji Ramos, a uh, photographer who flew with and knew the great legend Snort Snodgrass quite well. Uh, Fuji, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to give us some insight into all this. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. I said Snort was, was a great friend and it's always a pleasure to speak about him and, you know, preserve his legacy. Thanks. Excellent. The annual Sea Air Space Exposition sponsored by the U.S. Navy League opens August 2nd in National Harbor, just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, the first major live naval-related trade show and conference since the pandemic. Chris, both of us will be there. Um, what are you hoping out of this show? What are you looking forward to next week? I think the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is seeing people face-to-face -face conversations, um, being able to just, you know, engage with people, not have it planned, not be on Zoom, all that. There's the spontaneity of, of a conference, which is always one of the major attractions of these things, where, where, you know, the world gathers and you can 
You can just see people, make contact, renew old, old acquaintances, and also just learn things. Um, there's nothing like a, a great big trade show, really, to just wander around and see what you see, talk to people. Um, you know, all the, the, the industry partners all show up, um, including quite a number of foreign uh, companies, uh, not just U.S., uh, all of whom are there to talk about their, their stuff. What are they doing? What are they up to? Um, they're happy to talk to you. That's, what they're, that's why they're there. A lot of times it's hard to get people you know, on the phone, a lot of times to set things up. Um, you can just have conversations. It's incredibly educational, informative, a great place to make contacts. You simply can't beat the in-person event. The, the Zoom events have been good. They've had their own qualities, uh, in terms of, especially in terms of accessibility. You don't have to go anywhere. It doesn't cost you anything to go down and to open up your computer and just dial in. On the other hand, you really do lack that that in-person con, con, you know, context that just means so much. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm immensely looking forward to that. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the Zoom events quickly went to so scripted and so formal once uh, the pandemic hit. I think that informal conversation, that sensing, that intel gathering, that uh, walking the floor at a major trade show uh, provides you um, will be a welcome change. The last time we went to this show or really any show was during the Trump administration. So they'll, you know, having a new administration, I want to see how people are, um, you know, what, what their thoughts are about that. I want to see what their thoughts are following the rollout of the budget and testimony. And I think you get a real good sense of that um, from industry and, and how they present their products. Um, there's been this real, um, you know, theme or, or push on, you know, innovation. I mean, that's kind of a tin phrase, but speed, I, I want to see how they're responding uh, to that. I'll tell you what I'm not really looking forward to is are the formal briefs. Um, there aren't that many that are that interesting. Um, I mean, it's kind of a rehash of the same old, same old. I mean, I don't know that you're going to hear anything different or new from the service chiefs. I, I do always like once you get down kind of three and four levels into the briefs. Right. So I'm looking forward to the maintenance brief. I'm looking forward to, um, I want to hear from Admiral D uh, Dave Small, who's going to talk about, you know, uh, overmatch. Uh, you know, the, those types of briefs are interesting, but the, the you know, the more formal things I could do without. I'm with you. I'd, I'd rather walk around. A lot of the program managers will be there from, uh, Naval Sea Systems Command from Naval Air Systems Command. Um, some of their briefs are, you know, frankly, people are just hoping to get out, give a brief and get out without uh, causing any waves and getting in trouble. But there's a lot of that. Um, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who do come out and actually provide information, good updates on their programs that you don't get to hear on the day-to-day -day and they, that they don't talk about on their websites. And, 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 and it can be quite useful. You never really know until you're there. But um, yeah, what, that's sort of why I got to go. What's the issue or decision that you're keeping an eye on? I mean, when we did this last, it, it was kind of, it was the, you know, which, uh, which company was going to win Constellation. Um, there, there seems to always be kind of a, an acquisition decision or a, um, a personnel decision. I, I can't really think of a big one. I, I was, you know, as I was putting my notes together, there wasn't one that really jumped out at me. 
other than maybe what's to happen with the LCS program writ large, but is there, is there an announcement or something that you're hoping to learn, you know, about specifically as you, as you walk around mm -hmm. and talk to people? No, <laughs> it's work. Right. you know, it, actually, you know, it's, it, it, it's one of the things that distinguishes the American shows from shows overseas where the, 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 the foreign shows, and this is Europe and Asia primarily are in the Mideast. Um, the governments and the industries um, save up major announcements for the show. Some of them, you know, every single day, there's like, you know, show up, come, come to a certain spot at four o'clock every day right. and they drop all these things on you. Um, that doesn't, and sometimes people know it's coming. Sometimes they, they don't, but, but it's, it's an effort to, to make constant news that does not happen at the American shows. Quite the contrary. Um, you know, way too many, way too many uh, government people saying, I don't want to get out ahead of that decision. And that's too pre-decisional and um, industry, you know, scared of, of saying something that the, the customer, the government is, isn't ready for them to say yet. Uh, there's far more reticence about that and very little about, you know, this is what we're thinking about. This is what we're doing. You know, it's, 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 it's really interesting. One of the major compar comparisons I like to do is between sports and, and the government. And in sports, people talk about what's happening, what's to come. You know, people start talking about the Super Bowl as soon as we know those two teams are going to be in it. It's been two weeks with constant chatter. They talk about it the morning of the game, during the game, blah, blah. Here's our halftime report. Here's our field. Here's our guy on the field. You know, the government, I don't want to say anything until you know, everything is pre-decisional. I don't want to say a thing until it's over because we don't want anybody to think that's, oh, my God, that's what we're doing. This whole concept of pre-decisional is a is a is a is a false construct to be polite about it yeah so what if it's i think we can all understand the game's not over yet i understand it's the first quarter i understand the game's not happening for a week you know I, I, i'm not gonna say well what happened i got up and went to the bathroom and you guys were leading what happened i mean that doesn't happen and it's a it's a it, it's just very frustrating when people say that all the time as if it's a thing that's pre-decisional which means what it means you don't want Congress to hear about it because they'll get you on the phone and, and give you their opinion. Yeah. Well, in, in a lot of cases, it's a missed opportunity. I mean, it, it yeah. really is. I mean, you, right. you, you know, you, you would love to be able to kind of expand the conversation or, or challenge people and get into a little bit of a, a, of a debate. The, the shows do tend to be so, uh, so scripted, which is nice. That's what makes walking around, uh, you know, right. so, uh, so nice. Um, just a programming note. I mean, we'll, as, as I said, we'll be there. Um, throughout the week, uh, Vago on his pod uh, has a number of guests on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then he's going to spread out some coverage over the the next two weeks. And uh, you know, we'll be doing a show wrap on Monday with Vago, so th there'll be a lot to talk about. Unending stuff to talk about, actually. Okay, well that's that. And guess what? Now uh -oh. hear this. Uh -oh. Now hear this. Uh -oh. Now All right. hear this. Okay, well it's time for Squawk Box, and uh, this week Mr. Cervello would like to squawk about. What else? See airspace. So go ahead. Take it away, Chris. Well, hopefully many of you listening to this podcast will have occasion to attend or follow our coverage of Navy League Sea Air and Space Exposition next week at National Harbor, Maryland. As we just mentioned, it will be great to see and catch up with professional colleagues, friends, old shipmates, see some of the latest technology and hear from Navy and industry leaders. That said, if the agenda and comments from the Navy League's prequel that ran in July are indications, there will be one notable absence from next week's festivities. That is a serious discussion about sea power, 
and what it means in 2021. In recent discussions and readings, it has become more and more obvious that the Department of Defense, Congress, and the White House have very different approaches and visions for American sea power. Some may even argue that no such vision or appreciation exists. Without that context, discussions about fleet architecture, maintenance, new technology, and my favorite buzz phrase, divest to invest, are incongruent and illogical, and honestly, are kind of a waste of time. Key gaps are missing from our national maritime discussion, and as such, tactical conversations mean nothing because they lack a common framework for how national leaders want to use the sea services to achieve political and economic ends. I don't mean to be Debbie Downer or a constant complainer. I am genuinely looking forward to next week's festivities, but I'm also looking forward to a time when events like Sea, Air and Space educate and challenge the audience to think differently about how we act as a maritime nation. So as I attend panels, walk around the exhibit floor and meet with colleagues, I will be thinking about what I'm not hearing just as much as what people are actually saying. I would encourage you to do the same. All right, well said, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. And as always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian for his support, as well as to Fink and Terry Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the Defense and Aerospace Report effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Be sure and tune in next week. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.